0: Hi, I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now! Our journalism is powered by you, not by any corporation or government. That means we count on your support to produce our daily news hour. Please make your donation of 5 or $10 or more at democracynow.org, especially today. It's Giving Tuesday, a day dedicated to supporting nonprofits. All donations to Democracy Now! will be tripled. I hope you take advantage of this generous match. Every dollar makes a difference. Thank you so much. From New York, this is Democracy Now!
1: Yeah, I think, you know, we're, we're huge supporters of, of women's rights. And I know the post that like I mentioned, you know, we, we didn't know anything about the post, but we are
2: supporters of women's rights. We, we always have been.
0: Iran wants to kick the U.S. out of the World Cup after the U.S. Soccer Federation changed Iran's flag on its social media platforms to show support for protesters in Iran, one of many protests at the games in Qatar, where on Monday, a protester ran across the field waving a rainbow flag and wearing a Superman shirt that read Save Ukraine on the front and respect for Iranian women on the back. As the U.S. and Iran teams are playing each other today, we'll go to Qatar to speak with Abdullah al who writes the New York Times op-ed, Why the World Cup Belongs in the Middle East. And we'll speak with former pro soccer player Jules Boykoff, who says the World Cup in Qatar is a climate catastrophe.
2: As the Qatar Men's World Cup unfolds, not are we only seeing sports washing, where we're seeing political leaders use the event to try to deflect attention from human rights woes at home. But we're also seeing FIFA, the world's governing body for soccer, pull off a major greenwash. There is nothing that's green about this event.
0: Then in a remarkable courtroom scene Monday, Manhattan D.A. Alvin Bragg asks the judge to drop the murder charges against domestic violence survivor Tracy McCarter, who says she stabbed her estranged husband in self-defense, but spent six months in Rikers before a campaign to release her succeeded.
3: I stand with Tracy.
0: I stand with Tracy. I stand with Tracy. I stand with Tracy. I stand with Tracy.
4: I stand with my mom.
0: We'll get an update from reporter Victoria Law. Her piece for the nation is headlined, the worst abuser you could ever have. Tracy McCarter did everything we tell survivors to do, but that did not protect her from the abuse she suffered at the hands of the state. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Secretary of State Antony Blinken and his NATO counterparts are meeting in Romania to discuss ways to provide Ukraine with more military aid, including air defense systems. Ahead of the meeting, NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg accused Russia of using winter as a weapon by targeting Ukraine's energy infrastructure, leaving millions of Ukrainians without heat or electricity. Earlier today, Stoltenberg vowed NATO would continue to support Ukraine. Therefore, to create the conditions
3: for lasting peace, which ensures that Ukraine prevails as an independent sovereign state, we must continue to provide military support to Ukraine. So our message from Bucharest is that NATO will continue to stand with Ukraine for as long as it takes. We will not back down.
0: The NATO meeting is taking place as Politico is reporting some European officials are privately accusing the U.S. of profiting from the war in Ukraine. One senior European official recently told Politico, quote, "...the fact is, if you look at it soberly, the country that is most profiting from this war is the U.S. because they're selling more gas at higher prices and because they're selling more weapons," unquote. Authorities in China have moved to prevent more large protests against the country's zero COVID policies. In Beijing, police surrounded the site where protesters were planning to gather Monday. Meanwhile, in Shanghai, police erected large barriers where protests were held over the weekend. Police made several arrests at a small protest in the southern city of Hangzhou on Monday night. Meanwhile, Chinese officials have begun lifting some COVID-19 restrictions following this weekend's unprecedented protests. China's also announced a new drive to vaccinate more residents over the age of 80. Taiwan's President Tsai Ing-wen has resigned as the ruling Democratic Progressive Party after her party suffered major losses in local elections Saturday. Voters in Taiwan overwhelmingly backed the opposition Nationalist Party, which has historically supported closer ties with China. In labor news, President Biden sided with big business and has urged Congress to intervene to block freight rail workers from going on strike, saying it could devastate the economy. On Monday, Biden asked lawmakers to quickly pass legislation to impose a labor deal that's been opposed by the majority of freight rail workers. In a statement, Biden said, "Quote, as a proud pro-labor president, I'm reluctant to override the ratification procedures and the views of those who voted against the agreement, but in this case, we're where the economic impact of a shutdown would hurt millions of other working people and families, I believe Congress must use its powers to adopt this deal, Biden said. Many union activists criticized Biden's move to block a strike. Ron Kaminko, a locomotive engineer and organizer for Railroad Workers United, spoke to Democracy Now! last night. We could have seen Biden actually opt for telling Congress he would like to see Congress pass legislation Uh, that uh, mediates an end to the conflict,
2: uh, under which more favorable terms to the workers, which is to
0: say a handful of sick days. And that's what this has come down to. Uh, Railroad workers traditionally have had no sick time. And now with the very, very harsh attendance policies that we're faced with, railroad workers get very, very little time off work. This all comes as profits soar for the freight rail industry, which has reduced the rail workforce by 30 percent over the last six years. In news from Buffalo, New York, the white teenager who shot dead 10 people at a Buffalo supermarket in a predominantly black neighborhood in May has pleaded guilty to murder and hate-motivated terrorism charges. The gunman faces a sentence of life in prison without parole. Buffalo Mayor Byron Brown spoke Monday.
3: But today is— District Attorney Flynn has said, justice has been done, this individual has admitted their guilt, and the penalty for this horrific crime is for this individual never, ever to see the light of day again. Life imprisonment without the possibility of parole.
0: A candlelight vigil was held Monday night in Chesapeake, Virginia, to remember the six Walmart workers who were shot dead by a store manager a week ago. The victims in the mass shooting ranged in age from 16 to 70. Authorities say the shooter used a 9 millimeter handgun that he'd bought just hours earlier. Five police officers in New Haven, Connecticut, have been arrested and charged for their role in an incident that left a black man named Randy Cox paralyzed. On June 19th, police arrested the 36-year-old man on a suspicion of illegally possessing a handgun. He was then handcuffed and placed in the back of a police van without a seatbelt. After the van made an abrupt stop, Cox slid into the van's back metal wall, seriously injuring his neck and spine. Officers then ignored his pleas for help. Charges against the five officers include second-degree reckless endangerment. The state of Arizona sued the Republican-controlled county of Cochise after its board of supervisors refused to certify the results of the 2022 election. The lawsuit was filed by Arizona's Secretary of State Katie Hobbs, who defeated Republican Trump-endorsed candidate Carrie Lake in the closely-watched gubernatorial race. On Monday, Arizona's largest county, Maricopa, certified the election results unanimously after a raucous public meeting where supporters of Lake claimed the election was rigged without offering evidence is a loyal supporter of Trump's false claims of a rigged 2020 presidential election. She's refused to concede defeat after losing to Katie Hobbs. The New York Times, The Guardian and three major European newspapers are urging the Biden administration to drop all charges against WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange. In a joint letter, the newspapers say, quote, This indictment sets a dangerous precedent and threatens to undermine America's First Amendment and the freedom of the press. The letter ends with the words, Publishing is not a crime. Julian Assange, who is jailed in Britain, faces up to 175 years in a U.S. prison on espionage and hacking charges for exposing U.S. war crimes in Afghanistan and Iraq. The five publications, which also include Le Monde, Der Spiegel and El Pais in Spain, had partnered with WikiLeaks in 2010 to report on documents leaked by Chelsea Manning. The Biden administration's eased some sanctions on Venezuela and has given Chevron approval to resume pumping oil in Venezuela. The announcement came after the government of President Nicolás Maduro resumed talks with Venezuelan opposition groups in Mexico City to address Venezuela's economic and humanitarian crisis. In news from the occupied West Bank, Israeli military forces have demolished a Palestinian primary school south of Hebron. Video posted online shows young Palestinian students in tears as they had to leave their classroom before a bulldozer destroyed their school in Masafir The Israeli human rights group at Salam condemned the school demolition, saying, quote, This is part of a state effort to drive Palestinians out of the area by making their lives unbearable. Expelling residents is a war crime, B'Tselem said. The European Union also condemned the school demolition. Earlier today, Israeli forces shot dead four Palestinians, including a pair of brothers in the West Bank. At the United Nations, the U.N. special coordinator for the Middle East peace process, Tor Wenisland, warned Monday the situation in the occupied West Bank is reaching a boiling point.
3: Mr. President, after decades of persistent violence,
0: illegal settlement expansion, dormant negotiation and deepening occupation, the conflict is again reaching a boiling point. In news from Northern Ireland, a former British soldier has been convicted of killing a Catholic man in 1988. The soldier, David Holden, shot 23-year-old Aidan McEnnisby in the back near a British Army checkpoint. Holden's the first British veteran to be convicted of killing an Irish civilian since the 1998 Good Friday Agreement was signed. The Missouri Supreme Court has refused to halt the execution of Kevin Johnson, despite a special prosecutor's request for a stay in order to fully investigate how the case was tainted by racism. The court's ruling was five to two. Johnson, who is African-American, is scheduled to be executed today. Visit democracynow.org to see our coverage of the case. Donald Trump is facing growing condemnation for hosting white supremacist Nick Fuentes at his Mar-a-Lago resort in Florida last week. Fuentes, who is a Holocaust denier, dined with the president, along with rapper Kanye West, who was suspended from Twitter last month for making anti-Semitic comments. Trump's former vice president, Mike Pence, said, quote, President Trump was wrong to give a white nationalist, an anti-Semite, and a Holocaust denier a seat at the table. I think he should apologize for it, and he should denounce those individuals and their hateful rhetoric without qualification, Pence said. At the White House, Press Secretary Corrine Jean-Pierre also condemned Trump's actions.
4: This administration, this president totally rejects uh, uh, bigotry, racism, anti-Semitism, and there is just no place uh, for these types of vile forces in our society.
0: In Texas, over two million Houston residents remain under a boil water notice. After a power outage at a city water purification plant over the weekend, many businesses were forced to close and schools will remain closed through Wednesday as Houston officials review water samples to determine whether it's safe to drink or use. Many residents said they didn't hear about the boil water advisory till Monday, though it was issued a day earlier. Houston officials said they expect the notice to be lifted today. A federal judge has issued a cease and desist order forcing retail giant Amazon to stop retaliating against workers involved in union organizing. Amazon executives will also have to publicly read the 30-page ruling to employees at the Staten Island, New York, Amazon warehouse Thursday. The warehouse, known as JFK 8, became the first to pass a union vote in April. Amazon has since launched an aggressive intimidation campaign against workers fending off union elections in Bessemer, Alabama, and at least two other warehouses in New York. The National Labor Relations Board said in a statement, quote, This relief is critical to ensure that Amazon employees everywhere can fully and freely exercise their rights to join together and improve their working conditions, including by forming, assisting or joining a union. Meanwhile, in California, employees at Two Pete's coffee stores in Davis have filed paperwork with the NLRB to hold the coffee chain's first-ever unionization vote. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We begin today's show in Qatar, looking at the FIFA World Cup underway there, the first Arab country to host the tournament, which takes place every four years. On Monday, a protester ran onto the field during a game waving a rainbow flag and wearing a Superman T-shirt that read Save Ukraine on the front and respect for Iranian women on the back. Today, much of the focus is on a big game between Iran and the United States that could determine who advances to the next round. Iran's state media has called for the United States to be kicked out of the tournament after the U.S. national soccer team posted a now-removed picture of the Iranian flag on social media without the emblem of the Islamic Republic in support of ongoing anti-government protests in Iran. The U.S. Soccer Federation said the change was, quote, a one-time graphic. This U.S. soccer player, Walker Zimmerman.
2: Yeah, I think, you know, we're, we're huge supporters of, of women's rights. And I know the post, like I mentioned, you know, we, we didn't know anything about the post, but we are supporters of women's rights. We we always have been.
0: This comes as human rights advocates have raised alarm over the harsh and deadly conditions faced by migrant workers in Qatar, who built the World Cup stadiums and other infrastructure as part of the Kafala sponsorship system. Tournament organizers put the official death toll of migrant workers at 40, but rights groups and media outlets like the Guardian estimate thousands have died. For more, we go to Doha, Qatar, to speak with Abdullah Alarian, history professor at Georgetown University in Qatar and editor of Football in the Middle East, State Society and the Beautiful Game. He just wrote a New York Times op-ed headlined, Why the World Cup Belongs in the Middle East. In it, he writes the Palestinian poet Mahmoud Darwish, once noted that football is the field of expression permitted by secret understanding between ruler and ruled in the prison cell of Arab democracy, unquote. The game, Abdullah adds, represents a breathing space— allowing a splintered homeland, uh, an opportunity to join together around something shared. Again, these are the words of um, Darwish. In the decades since the Arab uprisings, many countries in the Middle East have become even more repressive, making the breathing space of football feel more urgent than ever, Abdullah Alarian wrote. We welcome you to Democracy Now! Um, Why don't you just elaborate on this and the whole context of these games—
1: yeah, thank you, Amy. I, I mean, I think, you know, when we uh, consider, you know, the conversations that have been had around the Qatar World Cup and we're talking, you know, a process that, that began all the way back in 2009 when Qatar uh, made its initial bid to host the Games. It was approved in 2010 by by FIFA's voting body under obviously major clouds of suspicion, given the kind of levels of corruption that we now know all about within FIFA. Um, and then, of course, a number of other questions and legitimate concerns were being raised around the conduct of the planning for the World Cup. Um, and so I think, you know, there there are so many different conversations that are being had around uh, this event, and yet there is uh, something that's also lost in all of this, which I, you know, try to kind of share a little bit in, in some of what you've just read, in terms of thinking about kind of what football represents, especially considering that some of the critiques that were shared um, you know over the last decade or so, tended to be around the idea that this region mm-hmm. lacks a football history or a football culture. Um, that it's not deserving in any way of kind of hosting a major event of this sort and, you know, focusing obviously exclusively on the question of Qatar as opposed to kind of what this might represent for the broader region, given what we know. You know, Qatar is a, is a country in which only about, you know, 10 to 15 percent of its population are actual Qatari citizens. Everyone else who lives here uh, hails from elsewhere, whether we're talking about the migrant worker population, whether we're talking about, you know, many generations of, um, you know, Arabs coming from, places like Tunisia and Egypt and Lebanon and Palestine um, that also are kind of sharing in this event. And so in that sense, I think there is a kind of an important historical um, component to, to the event in terms of what football has represented historically in the region. Of course, this goes back to the colonial days when it was being introduced by British and French officials as a way of kind of instilling discipline. Um, and and kind of civilizing the local populations. And then, of course, moving forward, it then becomes kind of internalized and embodied by nationalist movements that are then using football as a means of organizing collectively on the basis of of achieving their own liberation against colonial rule. We see that, for instance, in the Algerian case where the FLN, which fought the Algerian revolution against France, formed its own team in exile um, and and went on to kind of spread awareness about the Algerian uh, case Um, to the entire international community in the late 1950s and early 1960s. And so, you know, there is that kind of historical component, even in a place like Qatar, where football was introduced through, uh, you know, the oil companies that came with the British colonial uh, presence back in the late 1940s, you know, a Qatari League was established in the early 60s. And then, of course, uh, Qatar itself is not independent until the early 1970s. And so there is a kind of a deeper history there that I think often gets lost. Uh, Especially when we consider some of the more recent history, for instance, in thinking about, uh, you know, the uprisings going back to 2010, 2011, the way that, you know, football fan groups or ultras, as they're known, um, had much deeper experience in terms of confronting uh, the repression of state security forces in places like Egypt and elsewhere. And so we saw, of course, examples of them withstanding the brutality of the Mubarak regime security forces when it was desperately trying to cling to power in the face of a massive um, uprising, and so I think all of these stories being interwoven um, with the daily experiences with the political social economic development of um, the region, I think was was certainly part of the story that unfortunately has been lost in all of the kind of conversations around uh, the World cup and I think we're seeing it now manifesting in terms of the success. Uh, of many of the teams in the region that have been performing quite well here thinking of course about Morocco's historic win even Saudi Arabia's win against Argentina um, I mean there is a kind of an atmosphere of this being a kind of a, a, a kind of a home field advantage not just for the Qatari national team but really for teams from across the global south in in Asia and Africa
0: Can you explain the kafala sponsorship system
1: Yeah. So the kafala system, which uh, there's been a lot of discussion around, was the kind of migrant labor governance structure. This was something that was put in place initially by British colonial authorities at a time when they were trying to preserve their own interests as they were recognizing the fact that, you know, in, in the process of trying to secure their economic interest in the form of the oil sector and gas sector, Um, Or in terms of maintaining security, in terms of their presence, that they wanted to tie all of the migrant workers to um, their sponsorship, meaning that their employer would dictate the extent to which they would be allowed in the country for how long. Um, And so things like changing jobs were not permitted without the permission of the employer. Uh, There was no real protection over things like a minimum wage or even safety considerations and so this was a system that was then inherited by all of the independent states in the gulf especially for those who uh you know found themselves essentially outnumbered right as we said you know only about 15 percent of qatar uh is its indigenous population which meant that there was a a kind of a demand on the part of uh, the state rulers the elites to try to maintain a certain degree of of control over the rest of the population that lives there. And so the kafala system has kind of worked to serve that purpose. And, of course, as we then fast forward to the process by which, uh, you know, the economy is modernized, the state sees itself rapidly uh, expanding its infrastructure, having major demand for especially for these kind of heavy uh, construction projects, as we've been talking about throughout the lead up to the World Cup, Um, that we're seeing kind of the the edges fray on the system to the point where the exploitation has become far more stark. We've seen, obviously, a lot more um, questions about things like the lack of basic safety uh, provisions, um, questions about things like wage theft. We've seen retaliatory deportations. Um, And so there are... Um, you know, concerns that have been raised on the basis of the kind of the rapid hyper-modernization that's occurred, especially, I would say, in the last couple of decades, not just in Qatar, but really kind of region-wide. We've seen the same thing in the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia uh, and elsewhere.
0: On Monday, um, the U.S. coach and players were questioned by Iranian journalists. This is the team captain, Tyler Adams, being questioned.
3: First of all, you say you support the Iranian people, but you're pronouncing our country's name wrong. Our country is named Iran, not Iran. Please, once and for all, let's get this clear. Second of all, um, are you okay to be representing a country that has so much discrimination against black people in its own borders? And uh, we saw the Black Lives Matter movement uh, over the past few years. Are you okay to be representing the U.S.? Meanwhile, there's so much discrimination happening against black people in America.
1: My apologies on uh, the mispronunciation of your country. Um, yeah, that being said... You know, there's discrimination uh, everywhere you go. Um, you know, one thing that I've learned, especially from living abroad in the past years and uh, having to fit in in different cultures and and kind of assimilate into different cultures, um, is that in the U.S. we're we're continuing to make progress uh, every single day.
0: Meanwhile, earlier at the World Cup, Iran's football coach, Carlos Queiroz, confronted the BBC correspondent uh, Shema Khalil as she tried to ask him about the protests in Iran.
3: Think the, that it's no, fair to ask No, question. I'm asking one thing to you now. Yes. The press conference finished. What Absolutely. do you think is fair also to ask other questions to the other coaches? That's the only question I make. Absolutely, but I'm so, asking an Iranian, an Iranian ask player about his own country. Why don't country. ask it to the other coaches? Why don't I ask Southgate about it? What do you think about England and the United States, the left Afghanistan, and you know, all the women alone? Thank, thank you. This is an Iranian, is an Iranian player.
0: Professor Abdullah, if you can talk about this, um, uh, the dropping of the um, logo within the Iranian flag, uh, but also the Iranian team itself uh, not singing the Iranian national anthem, which seemed to be in solidarity with the protests in Iran. They would later sing it at another game, but extremely significant, given they have family at home, not to mention they're returning home. So if you can talk about this moment today as the two Teams are going to play each other.
1: Yeah, I mean it's uh, it's it's really interesting, especially when we contrast with the last time that both of these teams met one another. So going back to the 1998 World Cup, in which the U.S. and Iran met, and at that point we saw a lot more kind of conciliatory gestures. There was kind of attempts to, you know, the, the U.S. team brought a bouquet of roses to present to the Iranian team. We saw conciliatory gestures from the Iranian president at the time, Khatami. Uh, and Bill Clinton both kind of saying, you know, maybe this is a, a chance for a new opening. Of course, we didn't really see that happening. And so it's it's really quite, um, you know, a stark contrast to what we're seeing now. I mean, I think, you know, the, the U.S. kind of mini protest uh, on its uh, on its web presence, I think, you know, in some ways it's kind of unprecedented. I don't know that we've really ever seen two teams that are going up against one another on the field. For one team to kind of take take on a, a outside protest against that team's pol- on a kind of a political basis, um, and I think to to that extent, I think this clearly uh, you know demonstrates the extent to which there is a recognition that there could be change coming, or that at least the protest movement in Iran is is something to kind of you know give give a little bit more uh, hope to. Um, But at the same time, as I think many people have pointed out, the idea that the United States simply has the best interest of, of people who are seeking freedom or democracy. We've seen that time and time again. That's never really been the case, that these are really ultimately about kind of narrow agendas and political interests that the U.S. has pursued, particularly in the Middle East, as we've seen, again, with the example that was brought up about Afghanistan. But you can include Iraq in there as well, not to mention the lack of support for a democratization basically everywhere else in the Arab region that the U.S. has far preferred to support authoritarian rulers that have been incredibly repressive of their populations, both men as well as women. Um, so I think that there's, there's certainly a kind of obvious hypocrisy here that has been called attention to time and time again. And at the same time, going back to the question of the Iranian players caught in a, in a really difficult situation. Uh, you know, that, that has perhaps even impacted their ability to kind of remain focused on the task at hand, which is to perform on the field. They, they certainly had a really great performance in their second match, not so much in their first match. And, of course, now all eyes will be on how they perform today. But, of course, there are far more serious things going on back home, as you mentioned, thinking about, you know, having to balance between the demands of what the state uh, expects of its national teams. And I think we see this with basically every national team is meant to be there to kind of represent the, their country, their government, their state. And so the room uh, for protesting or for speaking out against things that are happening um, at home are is incredibly limited. And so there's a certain kind of bravery, I think, when we consider some of the, the demonstrations, not just in terms of the national anthem, but even some of the remarks that were made um, by some of the Iranian players that were expressing sympathy with with kind of the victims. Um, of the crackdown against the protest, and so these are these are obviously still um, really precarious moments for for the team, as it's also you know. Um, uh, coming up against a kind of an incredibly important moment in uh, the careers, the football careers of all of these players.
0: Mm. Uh, finally, Professor Alarian, what do you think the Western media gets most wrong about coverage of the World Cup? And what surprised you most uh, about uh, being there and um, participating and, you know, watching the games and what doesn't get conveyed?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's— really a a question of, um, you know, covering things as they exist, as opposed to sort of what we we tend to hear about as being kind of the situation on paper. Um, So certainly we know about Qatar's system, both politically, economically. Uh, We know about the kind of the cultural questions that have come up. And I think that for people who tend to do research on the region, who do activism within the region, or have been here on the ground covering a lot of these really serious questions and and a lot of the, the important issues that have been raised, tend to get it right in a way that people who are doing all of that work from a distance and doing it from a context that kind of smacks of a sort of orientalist outlook that tends to treat the region as exceptional rather than thinking about it as as kind of part of a, a global system of exploitation. For instance, if we're talking about the migrant labor issue, right, that Fatal doesn't exist in a vacuum but is rather beholden to, you know, uh, multinational corporate interests. That are also dictating the flow of labor and capital in in you know sub many directions as opposed to kind of thinking about it as purely an isolated case, uh, or when we're thinking about kind of cultural questions, the fact that these things tend to be negotiated far more within society than the types of laws and things that we we tend to hear more about, um, and also the fact that it's also it's a place that has been kind of encountering, um, you know, change and encountering a lot of. Um, you know, diversity in terms of the populations that have lived here for many years, in terms of it being a a place of exchange, a place of interaction between people, not just in the region, um, but also global communities that have sort of found a home here one way or another. I think there is something more happening quite often than what we've been um, led to believe on the basis of kind of some of the the more uh, superficial or sensationalist reporting. It's not to say that there's not a lot of room for critique, and I, I certainly welcome that, particularly on the part of people who've been consistent in their criticisms elsewhere and will continue, hopefully, to do so with regard to the very serious issues that exist here. But I think in terms of, you know, seeing the the oftentimes, you know, um, reliance on just kind of cultural arguments or just referring to this as sort of being, I think we've seen this a lot from some of the commentaries, particularly coming out of Europe, um, you know, where, where Klinsman, for instance, the former U.S. national team coach, made quite racist arguments the other day in his commentary on the games. We've seen other examples of that, Uh, in terms of even just references to kind of Qatari dress and culture and things like that. And I, I think none of those have been helpful in terms of thinking about the more serious issues that should be confronted.
0: Abdullah Lalarian, we want to thank you so much for being with us. History professor at Georgetown University in Qatar, editor of Football in the Middle East, State Society, and the Beautiful Game. We'll link to your New York Times op-ed, Why the World Cup Belongs in the Middle East. Next up, we speak with former pro soccer player uh, Jules Boykoff, who says the World Cup in Qatar is a climate catastrophe. We'll talk about this and other issues with him. Stay with us. <laughs> Dog Days Are Over by Florence and the Machine. This is Democracy Now, DemocracyNow.org, the War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman as we continue to cover the 2022 FIFA World Cup underway in Qatar, where the soccer tournament's taking place in the winter for the first time due to Qatar's extreme summer temperatures. Qatar claims this will be a fully carbon neutral World Cup based on offsetting emissions, but many have refuted that. This is Lancaster University professor Mike Berners-Lee, whose research predicts this year's World Cup will actually emit 10 million tons of carbon. He spoke on BBC Sport.
2: The idea that they've somehow made it green by cheap, nasty so-called offsets that just don't undo the damage from the emissions at all, uh, you know, to become carbon neutral, that just uh, that doesn't stack up at all.
0: We're joined now from Portland, Oregon, by the former pro soccer player and author Jules Boykoff, whose latest article in Scientific American is headlined, The World Cup and Cutter is a Climate Catastrophe. He also published a piece in the Open Access SSJ Journal headlined, Toward a Theory of Sports Washing, Mega Events, Soft Power, and Political Conflict. What do you think is most important, Jules? I mean, you're a former athlete, uh, soccer player, football player. To understand and for people to take away from this World Cup?
2: Well, I would say there's two things that we should be thinking about even during the tournament, and that is what you mentioned at the outset sports washing and greenwashing. We're seeing both in Technicolor here with the Qatar World Cup. We're definitely seeing sports washing where political leaders are using the sports event to try to deflect attention from human rights woes at home and chronic social problems at home while trying to burnish their reputation on the world stage, thereby setting a path forward for political and economic advancement. But we're also seeing greenwashing. FIFA claiming that this is a carbon neutral Type of event makes a mockery of the concept of sustainability. Carbon Market Watch, a nonprofit group, did an analysis of the stadiums and their carbon footprint in terms of what FIFA said, and they found that FIFA underestimated the carbon footprint of the stadiums by eightfold. It doesn't stop there, Amy, it goes further. Every day going in and out of Qatar, you see 1,300 flights. This obviously adds to the emissions. It's not just humans that are flying in and out of Qatar as well. The actual grass seed that was used to make the fields, both the 130-plus practice fields, but also the eight pitches that are hosting these games, that grass seed came over from North America on climate-controlled flights. And these things don't just water themselves, these fields. Actually, they require tons of water, some 50,000 liters of desegregation, desalinated water every single day in the summer. And I mentioned it's desalinated, again, a carbon intensive process. And so there's a whole lot to talk about when it comes to the greenwash that we're seeing here, as well as the sports wash of this event.
0: Can you talk about Cutter Energy being one of the sponsors of this event?
2: Absolutely. This is especially ridiculous. Coming out of the COP27 meetings that we just had in Egypt, where everybody around the world is jumping up and down saying we need to take urgent action when it comes to global heating. And then you have Qatar Energy, this company that has become a sponsor with FIFA, that is a big purveyor of liquefied natural gas. And they claim to be a bridge fuel between carbon fossil fuels and to the greener future of wind power, for example. But in reality, it can delay the actual move to wind power. So there's in this moment, post-COP 27, there's no space for the kind of petro company sponsorships on these big platforms. It is just a pure greenwash through and through.
0: Can any one of these giant sports events, Jules, whether we're talking about the Olympics, the World Cup, the European Games, actually ever be carbon neutral?
2: That's a really good question, Amy. And it's difficult to make one of these events carbon neutral, whether it's the World Cup of Soccer or the Olympics, simply because of the size of these events. And rather than think about making the event smaller, listen to what FIFA is doing next. They're talking about making the World Cup field even bigger, having 48 teams instead of 32, as we have this year. We can expect that FIFA will host a 48-team World Cup and in 2026 when the world Men's World Cup comes to North America. So if you were going to get serious about creating a carbon neutral event, you would also bring on independent monitors who could do audits of these numbers and offer best practices moving forward. Unfortunately, FIFA, the world governing body for soccer, and the International Olympic Committee, the group that oversees the Olympic games, are moving in the opposite direction, getting more secretive while at the same time amplifying their green claims, without letting other people who are independent take a look at them.
0: And this issue of sports watching, Jules, um, uh, you talk, your subtitle of your piece, uh, Mega uh, Political—what is it? Mega Events, Soft Power and Political Conflict.
2: Absolutely. So one of the things that comes up when we hear about sports washing is, does this thing work? And what people often have in the back of their minds there is, does this work on an international audience in terms of deflecting our attention from some of the problems in the host country or city? But in reality, we also should be thinking about the domestic audiences. Take, for example, a recent sports washed event in Russia, the Sochi Winter Olympics. Ahead of those 2014 Olympics, Russia passed an anti-gay propaganda law that got all sorts of attention, and rightly so, around the world uh, for being anti-LGBTQ. But inside the country, this actually helped Vladimir Putin. He stood up to the West, the so-called decadent West, and his ratings during the Sochi Olympics went higher than ever. He actually had 86% approval ratings by the time that the Sochi Olympics concluded. And guess what? He used those high approval ratings to invade the Crimea between the Olympics and the Paralympics then in 2014. And I think that points up two really important dimensions of sports washing that are often pushed beneath the surface. And one, that is that domestic audiences matter a lot when it comes to sports washing. And two, this isn't just some mere branding exercise. This can actually be a conveyor belt of life and death.
0: I wanted to ask you about the issue of labor. Ten years ago, almost to the day in 2012, we traveled to Qatar's capital, Doha. Um, We were there for the U.N. Climate Summit, interestingly, where we spoke with Nepalese labor journalist Devendra Dugana about the plight of Qatar's migrant workers
3: What we expect to see is more people will die of working in the stadiums than the number of players playing in the Qatari stadiums. And can the Qatari government accept to live by that precedent that more workers will die of the uh, uh, unsafe working conditions here than the number of players playing in the field? On Thursday, the European
0: Union Parliament voted in favor of a resolution calling on FIFA to compensate the families of migrant workers who were injured and killed in preparation for the World Cup. This is Dutch socialist lawmaker Lara Wolters.
3: No matter how much progress was made in Qatar and progress was made, it's not OK, and I'm going to state the obvious here, for people to to die on building sites in their thousands. It's not OK for people to be jailed for asking for their wages. Jules Boykoff, what
0: do you think are the chances?
2: Well, for starters, what we're seeing in Qatar is that sports are politics by other means. And FIFA didn't expect all this pushback from the tournament being held in Qatar. But since we're all talking about politics, and I very much think we should be, we should think seriously and FIFA should act and put some of its money where its mouth is and give some money to migrant workers and their families who haven't been paid properly. Some of them have died and they haven't received proper compensation. So if you win the World Cup, you get, your team gets $42 million. That should be the bare minimum that should be then thrown in the direction of these families who have suffered so greatly because of the World Cup that is giving so many people around the world so much joy.
0: And finally, the protests that we've been seeing. I mean, you see the protester running across the field during one of the soccer games, uh, football games with a LGBTQ flag. Um, he's got a Superman t-shirt on and the back of it, it says, um, something like we stand with Iranian women and the front says save Ukraine. Um, also the, banning of uh, the One Love armbands. Uh, You had, I think, the British team wanted all to wear it. Can you talk about this?
2: Sure. So first, in terms of the athlete activism that we've been seeing in Qatar, you mentioned earlier that Iran stood in silence in their first match against England when their national anthem played. What an incredible act of courage, putting both themselves in danger, as well as their families who live in Iran still. And then you can contrast that with what happened with the captains of numerous European teams, Who had planned on wearing a One Love armband to show solidarity with LGBTQ people in Qatar and around the world. But FIFA threatened to issue yellow cards to the captains were they to wear that armband and collectively those European captains backed down. Now I'm not saying FIFA was right in kind of putting that forth as a potential penalty, but it was interesting to see how quickly these teams folded. You're also seeing, as you mentioned, activists trying to piggyjack the event. Let's not forget that five billion people are watching this World Cup in Qatar, an enormous audience for which you could put your cause forward and get them to think about it. And so the activists that you mentioned running on the field tried to piggyjack off of that popularity, hijacking the World Cup for their own political purposes, raising a number of important issues. And, you know, I think there's enough space for politics in sports at the same time. And I'm actually happy to see that we're seeing such robust discussions around politics, even this far into the World Cup. In my experience following the soccer World Cups, both men and women, it's really rare to see this continued conversation around politics, even though the football or soccer has already started.
0: Well, of course, we're going to continue to cover this issue. It's uh, five weeks, this um, uh, World Cup tournament. Uh, we'll see how it all plays out. Jules Boykoff, former professional soccer player, uh, we'll link to your piece in Scientific American, The World Cup in Qatar is a Climate Catastrophe, as well as your piece toward a theory of sports washing, mega events, soft power and political conflict. Next up, the worst abuser you could ever have. Tracy McCarter did everything we tell survivors to do, but that did not protect her from the abuse she suffered at the hands of the state. This is an amazing story of a woman who ended up killing her abuser um, who had been violated for years. She ends up at Rikers Island. Stay with us.
3: And is this story told by any other name? And violence is the only ecstasy we claim My blood and sweat is trophy, not as pain Replace the savior's shape, that narrative is drained. We see the sheep and sell the wool to buy our fame And laugh in a sense that meant again. Instead of home, we roll our teeth our velvet stain. This camaraderie we strive just to pretend We don't want to see it We don't want to see it end, we don't wanna see it end.
0: Freedom Facade by Contour. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman. In a remarkable courtroom scene here in New York City Monday, Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg asked a judge to drop the murder charges against domestic violence survivor Tracy McCarter, who says she stabbed her estranged husband in self-defense when he attacked her in her New York City apartment in 2020. Tracy McCarter spent six months at the Rikers Island jail until she was released thanks to pressure from a successful solidarity campaign. This is D.A. Bragg's exchange with Judge Diane Kiesel. Listen closely. It's off mic.
3: What you want to do now is to dismiss this case outright. Is that correct? Yes, sir. The fact,
0: This comes as an estimated 90% of women in New York who are incarcerated have been subjected to domestic violence. For more, we're joined by journalist Victoria Law. Uh, she was in the courtroom Monday. She's followed the case from the beginning. Her piece in the nation is headlined, The Worst Abuser You Could Ever Have. Tracy McCarter Did Everything We Tell Survivors to Do, but that did not protect her from the abuse she suffered at the hands of the state. Vicki, welcome back to Democracy Now! It's great to have you with us. Describe the scene in in the courtroom. I mean, we're watching the actual uh, Manhattan D.A. Uh, call for the dropping of the charges. Um, explain what happened to Tracy McCarter.
4: So thank you for having me and thank you for continuing to cover these types of issues of domestic violence and incarceration. So as you me- as you said, Tracy McCarter was arrested on March 2nd, 2020, uh, a few weeks before New York went on lockdown because of the coronavirus pandemic, uh, she had done everything that we tell domestic violence survivors to do. She separated herself from her increasingly abusive husband. She moved out. She found her own apartment. Uh, she continued working as a nurse. And I want to emphasize that she was working as a nurse uh, because the pandemic would hit a few weeks later. Um, and One night, she came home from work, and her estranged husband, Jim Murray, uh, had locked himself out of the Airbnb in which he was staying. He rang her buzzer. She knew from past experience that if she did not answer, he would ring the buzzer of every other apartment in the building until she let him in. And she had been threatened with eviction if he continued to do this. So she let him in, intending to let him sleep off his drunkenness on the couch— and once he got inside, he became belligerent. He started demanding money. When she initially refused, he attacked her. He strangled her. Um, she broke away. Uh, she held out. She grabbed a knife from her kitchen and held it out in a defensive posture. Um, he continued to attack her. And according to all court filings, uh, his death was an accident. He was drunk. He tripped. He fell on the knife, um, and there was one fatal stab wound. When she realized what happened, she immediately called 911, and being a nurse, attempted to uh, do uh, first aid on him, and the police arrived and found her attempting first aid on him. Uh, she was arrested and brought to the precinct. He was brought to a hospital where he later died. And the next day in court, the assistant district attorney, Sarah Sullivan, announced her intentions to seek second-degree murder charges against Tracy. And she was sent to Rikers Island because the district attorney's office argued that she was a flight risk because she had family out of state. And she also had a Texas nursing license because that where is where she had lived previously. Uh, she spent six months at Rikers. During that time, the pandemic broke out. Uh, Rikers became a coronavirus hotspot. All hands were needed at local hospitals, hospitals, in around New York City and she was prevented from helping out as a nurse. Um it wasn't until September 2020 where she fi- when she finally saw a grand jury which returned an indictment uh for second degree murder charges not having heard about the abuse and violence she had endured at the hands of her estranged husband or his previous history of violence while intoxicated. Uh, Her case became um, a talking point for several candidates for district attorney that year, including current district attorney Alvin Bragg, who tweeted prosecuting a domestic violence survivor who acted in self-defense is unjust. And he also later tweeted that her prosecution was a travesty of justice. And But it was not until— 10 days before her trial was about to start, so the Friday before Thanksgiving, that he actually filed a motion to dismiss the charges with the court. So her prosecution has gone on for more than two, more than two and a half years. And during that time, she has been in legal limbo, waiting to see if she can try to start picking up the pieces of her life or if she will be facing trial for murder and a possible 19 or 25-to-life sentence with that prosecution.
0: I mean, it's amazing that Bragg tweeted when he was running that this woman should be freed. Um, But it took uh, not only all this time, but the incredible work of the organization Survived and Punished that led a campaign um, for the charges to be dropped. Can you talk about the significance of this movement? Yes. Without this movement, Tracy
4: might still be on Rikers Island awaiting charges. We don't know how many domestic violence survivors are in similar situations facing charges uh, related to their abuse, whether it is defending themselves against violence from their partners or whether it is uh, being coerced into criminal actions because of abusive partners or family members. Um, but Tracy— um, connected with organizers from Survived and Punished, and they and Tracy's family, uh, her four adult children, have really advocated for not only for her freedom, but to raise awareness about the intersections between domestic violence and criminalization. So all the ways in which the legal system perpetuates the same types of abuse as abusive partners or abusive husbands. And while we don't know the number of people incarcerated for uh, acts related to domestic violence, what we do know is that race matters. As we've seen from the photos, uh, Tracy McCarter is a black woman. She is a nurse. Her estranged husband was a white man. And a 2016 study found that prosecutors are more likely to decrease charges against survivors who acted in self-defense, if they are white women than they are for black women, we also know that black women are more likely to be incarcerated than their white counterparts and that black women experience domestic violence at a much higher rate than white women.
0: You cite in your reporting Beth Ritchie, the co-founder of Insight, Women, Gender, Nonconforming and Trans People of Color Against Violence, and the author of multiple books about the intersections of interpersonal and state violence against Mm -hmm. black women. This is Beth Ritchie on Democracy Now! last year discussing the book she co-authored with Angela Davis and others called Abolition Feminism Now!,
3: We believe from our work, from our study, from our discussion with people both inside uh, prisons and jails, detention facilities, and our work outside in communities, that it is essential to take up the questions of abolition, of policing, of prisons, of surveillance strategies. It's essential to take up those that work from the perspective of feminism. And the best example that I can think of from my own work is what happens when we don't do that to criminalize survivors, that is people who end up incarcerated or otherwise under control of the carceral state, people who experience gender violence who turn sometimes to the state for protection and in fact the state turns on them because we know we know that one of the institutions that uses violence most is, in fact, the carceral state. So, carceral feminism is the um, is the turning to that violent institution, the carceral state, to solve the problem of gender-based violence. And we realize that the result of that is more people who experience gender-based violence. In fact detained, incarcerated, serving long sentences in U.S. correctional facilities.
0: So if you, uh, Victoria Law, can Mm -hmm. expand on what Beth Ritchie is saying um, and talk about whether you think that women who overwhelmingly imprisoned for murder are imprisoned for murdering their abusers, um, if the cases with survivors are being treated differently now, and also— If we're seeing this feed into the election of more progressive DAs around the country.
4: I think we're seeing more attention being paid to the criminalization of survivors. I've been on you know on your show previously talking about the cases of Sheryl Baldwin who was uh facing trial twice for the death of her abusive ex-boyfriend, and Brisha Meadows, who was facing uh life, possible life in prison, the 15-year-old who killed her abusive father and was facing adult charge, being charged as an adult and life in prison. And what we saw in the case of Brescia Meadows and now what we see in the case of Tracy McCarter is that there's an, there's an outpouring of support and attention and that has led the district attorneys to the point where they are willing to say, in the case of Brescia Meadows, I will offer a plea deal. I will not charge you as an adult an attempt to send you to prison for life. And in the case of Tracy McCarter, District Attorney Alvin Bragg saying, I cannot reasonably conclude that this was intentional murder and I do not wish to seek these charges. And these would not have happened had there not, again, been a tremendous outpouring of support and organizing and advocacy from people— including family members of both Bricia Meadows and Tracy McCarter. Um, but what we're seeing around the country doesn't necessarily play out um, in the same way. What we've seen uh, in California, there's a case of a woman named Wendy Howard who shot her abusive ex who had been investigated by police for sexually abusing um, two of her daughters, and she was acquitted of— all charges except for one, and the district attorney has the option of bringing that charge, bringing her to trial for that new charge. Mm-hmm. In the case of Tracy McCarter, the district attorney has said that he does not want to pursue Vicky, these murder charges. And Vicki, we just have charges. ten seconds. Mm-hmm. What
0: do you think the judge is going to rule? She said she'll rule by the end of the week, Judge Giesel. Well, I certainly hope that the judge
4: uh, rules in favor of the motion to dismiss and doesn't waste city resources further punishing a survivor for surviving. Uh, violence from her husband.
0: Victoria Lowen, thank you so much for being with us. Journalists who focus on the intersections of incarceration, gender and resistance will link to your coverage of this case for The Nation. And that does it for our show. A very special happy birthday to Dina Guzder, Democracy Now! produced with Renee Fels, Mike Burke, Dina Guzder, Messiah Rhodes, Nermeen Schiff. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks so much for joining us.